0: Good morning, everyone. How are you all? You all have masks on. I'm okay. I'll be okay with it. I was just so used to seeing your smiling, beautiful faces. Well, uh, we are here, week three, in a series that we've been calling Kaleidoscopic Gospel, where we've been investigating and considering uh, what Lorenzo just talked about. What does it mean for us as the people of God to make disciples? To invite others to investigate, to consider, to even join into the way of Jesus, to receive him as, as a forgiving and saving king. And so, this, this kaleidoscopic gospel has been all around making disciples, or what's been referred to as evangelism, our Christian calling. And so, what we've been doing through this kaleidoscopic gospel series is looking at one chapter in the book of Acts, chapter 16. If you want to begin to turn to verse 11, that's where we'll be starting in just a moment. In Acts 16, though, we find this really interesting dynamic that develops where we find these four facets of the kaleidoscopic gospel, as it were. Four pieces where the gospel meets four different diverse people in their four different diverse needs or what they're looking for or longing after. That the gospel is not a one-size-fits-all spiel, but rather the fulfillment, the deep resonance with these four different uh, themes or ideas. And so last week, my friend, uh, Pastor Heath Hardesty was here as we looked at the beauty of the gospel in uh, the relationships of Timothy and we were asking ourselves, okay, in light of that, how do we live out the beauty of the gospel in the relationships with our neighbors, with our coworkers, friends, and family members, those that, that wouldn't uh, call themselves followers of Jesus? Today, we're going to be looking at the next facet, the next color in the kaleidoscope, in uh, the kaleidoscopic gospel, as we move from beauty to truth. And I hope you see right there the the dynamic of this series kind of developing right there. That We've got beauty last week, truth this week. Next week will be the uh, power or the, the justice of the gospel. And the following week will be the hope or the freedom of the gospel that you have these kind of four themes that that are all when you look at the gospel there and yet Acts 16 kind of spins the kaleidoscope as it were and shows different stories where those colors illuminate and find new resonance and power as different people look through the story of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Because like I said, there is no one size fits all way of making disciples. But the gospel is this Incredible story that brings incredible fulfillment. Resonance, like I said, with different people. Wherever you're at, wherever your friends and family members, co-workers are, the gospel is speaking something that they're actually looking for. And today we're looking at truth. Look with me in Acts 16, verse 11. And actually, as we read this, why don't you join me in standing? Uh, This is a way of, uh, with our bodies identifying, that what we're reading is not just a history book. Uh, just a recounting of the story, but we believe that God is speaking through the Bible. And so we stand as a way of of reverence and honor. And so let's read 16, 11 through 15 today, where it says, so setting sail from Troas, we being Paul and company, made a direct voyage to Semothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, but on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there would be a place of prayer. We came, we sat down, and we began to speak with the women who had come together. And one of those that heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods and was a worshiper of God. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. And so, Father, today as we open our eyes to your word and God to our calling of being embedded missionaries, of being disciple makers, of being an evangelistic people, of pointing people to your son Jesus. May today you help us to ask the questions of what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? And how is that truth not just given to uh, those in our city, but how are we called to embody and present that truth? Help us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And so what we just saw a moment ago, reading through Lydia's story today, is that unlike, if you were here with us last week, Timothy's story and the the beauty of these relationships with Paul, with the local church, with his mother and grandmother, that Lydia's story is a little bit different. It's not so much about relationships and beauty, but rather about a conversation around the truth of the gospel, her paying attention, listening intently to the words of Paul. It's different than Timothy. It's different than what we'll find in the following two weeks of the power and justice of the gospel or the hope. Of the gospel. It's about the truth of the gospel today. But before we can talk about the truth of the gospel, I want to begin by just spending a few moments by asking that big existential question that we all ask what is truth in the first place? We might say that the, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but what actually is truth? It's a major point of conversation over these past years in the midst of uh, fake news and conspiracy theories of what is truth when we bottle down to the end of the day. Conversations go different ways around truth. Some see it as purely a cultural construct, one that has either been built and set up by those in power to uphold the, stereo, you know, the ongoing kind of way of the world, the status quo, that truth is nothing more than kind of the worldview that's been given to us by those in power Others of us being a a cultural construct not made up by those in power, but ultimately the truth comes down to each and every single one of us. As Kanye so wonderfully put it this past week, to live your truth. Even more than that, we move from it being a cultural construct to truth being an intellectual exercise where we sit down with the philosophers and we process through what actually is truth. Is it objective or subjective And even the idea of what is truth being this existential endeavor. Now, all of these conversations are really good. But uh, for the sake of time and also our own like mental capacities, I actually want to go a little bit deeper today. Not have a conversation about the existential nature of truth or the cultural realities of truth. I want to have a conversation first and foremost about truth as a spiritual reality. Truth is a spiritual reality. And when I say this, I don't mean truth as a religious or immaterial reality. I mean spiritual as the ancients understood it. The word spirit, ruach, was this word that was understood not to be spirit meaning, you know, kind of woof in here. Spirit was a way, that same word is what we call breath, what we call the air, what we call wind. This was all ways of talking about spirit. These things that are invisible yet energizing realities at work within our world. Invisible but energizing, life-giving when we think of breath. If you have breath, you are alive and moving. And the wind making its way through the trees, it's, it's a moving reality. When I say truth as spiritual, what I'm saying is that everyone breathes some air. Everyone is being moved by some winds and invisible yet energizing truth. For their lives. And even without getting into the existential questions about what is truth, subjective or objective, we're able to identify that regardless, everyone has some breath, some wind, some air, some invisible yet at work reality, something guiding and motivating and energizing their lives. Even the staunch atheist in this framework is spiritual in the sense that they have some spirit, some truth system which is guiding and energizing and moving their lives. Now then, as we talk about the truth of the gospel, within this framework, when Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus' claim here was not just that he is existentially true. He is a real historical person. That would make no sense for me to say, I am true to you, like Ryan true to you. Yes, we can see that. Thank you. Or even that Jesus is saying that I'm intellectually truthful, that what I say is a truthful claim, that what I preach and bring is a truthful. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he is claiming that he is not just a, but the energizing, motivating, guiding truth behind all reality. When Jesus claims to be the truth, he's not just saying, you can trust me. He's saying, I am the guiding, the truth behind everything. The wind at work, the the air in this world, the thing that moves you towards the trueness of reality is me. For us as Christians, to receive Jesus as the truth is to receive him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his current reign, his future return as the guiding, life-giving, energizing. It is the breath in our lungs, the air through our hair, the wind that moves us like wind in a sail, that Jesus is the truth. And evangelism, making disciples then, is about inviting others to consider, to receive Jesus, not just as the truth out there, but their truth, the wind that they are moved by, the air that they breathe, the truth that guides them. And so Lydia's story today, in light of this vision of truth, offers us three aspects of evangelism and truth. My hope today being that it would guide those of us who identify followers of Jesus, wanting to make disciples, a few things to consider in the ways we seek to grow in our maturity as disciple makers. But for those of you here that don't identify as a Christian, you're checking things out. You are so welcome. My hope today is that as you listen in, that you would kind of just ponder these questions of truth and what we're seeing here through your own uh, story. Those three things, real quickly, are we will see behind me, first and foremost, uh, the places of truth. We'll see this in verse 11 and 13, or through 13. We move on, not just to places of truth, but the presentation of truth in verse 14. And then finally, in verse 15, the propagation of truth. Lorenzo told you, I'm a plant guy. and so propagation. Anybody? Propagation. You know, you make more plants out of one. A propagation of truth. So places, presentation, propagation. There you go. You got alliteration and everything. So we're definitely preaching now. Let's look back at verse 11 through 13. And first and foremost, this idea of the places of truth, where our story opens up with them after receiving this incredible vision of come to Macedonia and help us. They make their way across the sea over to the city, the leading city of Macedonia, this Roman colony, Philippi. They stay there some days. And on Sabbath day, they head out to the riverside where it says, We suppose there was a place of prayer. The first thing we see within evangelism is Paul and company are searching for places where people are searching for truth. To be an evangelist is the sort of person, embedded missionary, is the kind of person who searches for the places where people are searching for truth. You see, this place of prayer was not like a Christian retreat center, right? Where they've got like, "Uh, uh," like, what's going on here? It's not a monastery, but just a general place of prayer within the city of Philippi. You see, riversides in the ancient world was understood as what, what we would call kind of thin spots with the spiritual realm. The riverside was a, a thin spot where the material and the spiritual, they, they got a little bit thinner than they were in the city in the rest of the world. Sometimes we even kind of, we might you know, laugh at this, but we, there's something different about when we go out into, those of us that live in the city like all day, and then we get out into, you know, we were visiting North Carolina or some of you Topanga or you go to Big Bear. There's just something different about that space. For the ancients, they understood that these riversides were thin places where the spiritual realm could be contacted more easily. And through prayer and worship to varying spirits or gods, they might receive power or guidance or wisdom for their lives. In essence, these thin spots were places where people believed they could find truth more readily to receive something from the spirits and the gods. Now, like I said, we may read this, and man, that's silly. We're so evolved now. Isn't that nice? That, like, we don't think that, like, riversides are thin places. And, like, the spirits are more readily available. Not so fast. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who the LA Times called one of the most influential, innovative writers of the last year, 20 years. Most of you would know of him because of his giant, oh, no. Yeah, that was Infinite Jest, was David. Yeah, David Foster Wallace, but nobody reads it. Uh, it's so big, and it's just, but... I like him for kind of his more cultural musings. He gave a commencement speech called This Is Water, and I think about it on a weekly basis. He writes this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And this is not a Christian. It's worth, worth noticing here. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship that we might have is that they are all unconscious. They're our default setting. David Foster Wallace, writing in the midst of a post Enlightenment secular age, says everybody worships. The only choice you get is what. We could change this and, and adapt this in our language today. Everybody has some truth that is guiding their lives, that they are giving themselves to as that which energizes and motivates and guides them in their lives. Everyone worships, everyone has some truth. And so if this is true, then then maybe the ancients and their understanding of thin places, of places of prayer, places of truth actually isn't all that crazy, that there are still places of prayer, of truth-seeking, of truth-finding. But considering David Foster Wallace again, that they likely are insidious and unconscious. That they're not as explicit as Riverside's. They require a perception shift to see them for the places of truth that they actually are. James K.A. Smith, in his uh, incredible book, You Are What You Love, it's like my top five recommendations for anyone Uh, who is a follower of Jesus. You are what you love. Grab it and get it. He describes uh, one of, you know, he he describes, we we have them in our city. He describes one of the largest, most expansive and expensive places of truth in our modern world, in our cities today. He lays out within the book a description of these sorts of places, that they have these massive um, parking lots where everybody that wants to come is able to come, And as you make your way up into the kind of sanctuary narthex area, you have these incredible icons and images of portrayals of the good life, portrayals of what what holiness and and, and, and vision looks like within the system of truth, these portraits of individuals, of saints that you could follow after. As you make your way through the sanctuary, these saints and icons are set before you to invite you into these little sub-systems within this larger temple complex. And as you make your way in, you then are confronted with these more continuing, now not just images, but these three-dimensional icons, these portrayals of the good life that you are invited to consider. As you look at them, looking over what it is that you are looking for, you can move to what the faithful call the racks. And as you make your way through the racks, you are able to consider and contemplate which of these, these talismans, these little religious objects that will provide you with some sense of being able to live into that vision of the good life that you were given, you might consider and take for yourself. If the stock is good that day, you can make your way up to what we could call the altar, where there a priest will preside over a, 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 a transactional element in which you make a sacrifice and in doing so receive your little religious object that now you can receive and enter into the good life. And then you can either make your way home or you can continue on to meditate and contemplate these icons of truth, of the good life, debating whether or not you might take up more for yourself. Now, I hope at some point you might just hopefully see, I'm not talking about some synagogue or mosque or shrine. I'm describing the Century City Mall. (laughs) That as we walk into these spaces, to say that these are not places of truth, that they are neutral in our lives would be, as he says, we're missing out on the insidious, unconscious nature of how this world propagates, sets truth before us in unconscious ways, These, in fact, are deeply religious. We may not have a God behind them, but our malls are cathedrals of consumerism with the buying and purchasing of goods and adorning of myself as the ultimate truth that guides, energizes, and motivates my life. We can do this with malls. We can do this with the ballot box, as Andrew Sullivan, again, a non-Christian writer in the New York Magazine, did um, a couple years back. A piece called America's New Religions, in which he identified that in our secular age, our religious impulses that we have have not gone away. They've just been centered into politics now. And the vitriol and anger that you had between these warring religions throughout history have now been set between the right and the left, with anybody moderate in between, as those that we're trying to convert. It's a place of truth of the ballot box. James K. A. Smith also identifies sports stadiums as being these cathedrals and places of nationalism and militaryism. If you go to the next sports game that you're at, football, you just pay attention to, like, isn't it interesting that we have, like, and the amount of American flags and the Pledge of Allegiance, like, all the, at a sports game, there's something that it's being set before us here. Gyms are offering some kind of truth about our bodies and the sacrifice. There's a sacrifice of me. You know, you think of, you know, old Roman Catholic monks scourging their bodies for the sake of purgation and becoming holier. And don't tell me that's not what CrossFit is. <laughs> we, my co-working space that we have our offices based out of, some of you in your own offices, the slogans on the wall, there is a truth about the holiness of hustle and the sacrifice of yourself for the vocation, for the job, for the paycheck, for the startup your movie theaters, every single film you watch, some place of truth, some vision of the good life, of the guiding, energizing, what is there? And coffee shops are the distillation of everything in the city. You go to Phil's, you go to go get them, you go to Super Domestic, wherever you wanna go. You just watch for the language and the things that are happening within the space or the, the vision statements that they give. Coffee shops are the distillation of everything that's used in your neighborhood. Even beyond that, digital places of social media, news sites, conspiracy theories, they are all inseminating, giving some shaping, guiding truth for our lives. So we, coming back to the text, like Paul coming in for him in the city of Philippi, him having to look for places of truth, we don't so much have to go look for places of truth as to get our eyes open to see how the places that we're already in are places of truth. To ask, what is that guiding thing that's being set before those who frequent these places? So I just invite you as you head out into our city over this next week, just walking in to go, what truths am I being offered here in this place? What are people being energized, motivated, guided in and by? Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying I don't go to the mall. I don't go to movie theaters. I don't vote. All I'm saying is if we give greater truth, Christian, if I give greater truth to Jesus, I need to be at least attentive to those, those counter-truths that are being formed as I enter into these places, as I spend time there. So as you go into this week, just look. What, what Just ask yourself. It's a really fun experiment. It might ruin malls for you. I can just sit now. I just walk in, and I'm like, ah, yes, the cathedral of consumerism. I'm like, ah. It probably won't. But at the very least, if you want to grow as an embedded missionary in your city, if you identify as a Christian and you want to, man, I want to get better at this. I want to be able to to have a discerning ability to see what's going on within my city. Ask, "What, what are people searching for here? What truth is being offered? Like I said, Paul searches for places of truth. And in finding these places of truth, he begins to talk with some of the women gathered there. Verse 14, the presentation of truth where well, we are introduced to Lydia, one of these women who hear their, their presentation, their kind of conversation they begin to have. Lydia, uh, just through some of the details here in the passage, we find out is an affluent woman, right? Boss lady. She's a seller of purple goods. That's just like Luke who wrote Acts, his little throwaway line that like she's loaded. Like you sell purple goods, you've, you're, you're rolling in it based off the reality of the passage and then when we talk about the household in a moment that her husband there's no husband or father kind of mentioned that she's she's some sort of an independent woman there was some category in the Roman world really rare but for these kind of women that were affluent and rich enough to actually have an independent kind of life and household for themselves she's affluent she's independent and in this kind of language of calling her a worshipper of God is actually this weird kind of language that Luke uses. Normally, if you had someone that was Greek, like she is, but was um, worshiping the God of Israel, the God of the scriptures, that they'd be called like a God fearer. But he uses this kind of worshiper of God language that she's like not there. She's not like full on like pagan or whatever. She's kind of in this individual space where she has some uh, faith in the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrew scriptures, the God of Moses and Abraham, but she's not part of the larger system of like the God fearer. So we could just call her spiritual, but not religious. So here we have, like this is mo- most of the ladies in the room, affluent for the most, you live on the west side, independent, spiritual but not religious. Like that's most of the people, like women on the west side that I come to contact with on a regular basis. And so it's interesting to study Lydia's story to see this specifically, the spiritual but not religious. And within this framework, when I say spiritual, not religious, what I mean is truth apart from tradition. She is some basis of connecting to the truth of the scriptures, but apart from Israel's community, their formal religious practices. She's spiritual, but not religious. And so Paul begins to have this conversation with her. But I want to focus on Paul's conversation as it's described in that last sentence there, where we see these kind of three things about the presentation of the truth of the gospel that are worth reflecting on. The first is to see the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opens her heart. So, Who's the one that's having the conversation with Lydia? It's, you know, Paul, right? And, or even as we think about our conversations with our friends and coworkers, it might be us. Luke, writing Acts, is really clear. It's God who opens hearts to the truth. But God uses Paul. God uses you and me. What, this, is like, this is worth a whole rant that I'm not gonna do, but it's incredible, maybe I will, that... <laughs> That God has all the ability in the world to open people's hearts to seeing him, and yet God chooses, he delights in using you and me. God could right now, like just like, you know, open people's hearts and they start, he chooses the conversations when his people have conversations with others. He uses that as the space in which he begins to open hearts. But notice that when God opens her hearts, he specifically opens her heart to pay attention to listen intently to what Paul's saying. Paul's opening of Lydia's heart is not this overpowering or forcing her, where she's just like, you know, she's sitting there with Paul and like poof, you know, lightning bolt comes out, and she's just like, Jesus! Like, she immediately becomes a, she the opening of her heart is actually this, this prompting and invitation where her heart begins to warm and resonate more and more. That it's that Lydia is still Lydia, it's still her. That Paul's opening of her, or God's opening of her heart is not this overpowering force, but this she begins to listen more intently, to engage, to consider the conversation. And then the third thing is that she's listening intently to what was said by Paul. Now, based on what we know about her and this kind of spiritual, not religious, affluent, independent, I want to stretch this kind of to what was said by Paul. I'm going to be pulling from other parts of Acts right now. So if you don't believe any of what I'm about to say, you can go sit and read Acts this week and uh, come back to me with any input. But What we know most likely Paul would be saying if she was truly this worshiper of God, spiritual but not religious, is likely a very similar presentation of the truth of the gospel as we find in Acts chapter 13. Where the apostle Paul gathered with a bunch of uh, Jewish people, begins to retell the story of Israel, everything that they would agree with all these portraits of the truth about Abraham and Moses and the story of God, the exile and the kings and the promised return. And then he brings that story to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Likely a very conversation here with Lydia, resonating with her, agreeing with her, her worshiping of God, the fact that she's resonating and searching for truth in the God of Israel in this story. But then he begins to not just agree with her, but then make this shift to showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that she had been waiting for and looking for. That dynamic right there is what we find as the guiding theme of every presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. Jesus as the fulfillment of all truth searching. Jesus is the fulfillment of all truth searching. Every presentation of the truth of the gospel in Acts and all the New Testament celebrates people's diverse searches for truth but then discloses and discusses conversation or proclamation of Jesus as the fulfillment of what they were searching for. It's astounding in one chapter over, Acts 17, Paul in the Areopagus, this places of prayer and truth for a bunch of pagans, like not even like Jewish people kind of like halfway there or something, absolute pagans. And Paul starts his conversation with them by admonishing and celebrating their worship to other gods. I mean, I see you guys are, are, he encourages them in their religious faithfulness to Zeus and and Poseidon and Artemis and Athena. It's like, man, this is great. But you guys have this altar for this one God, the God without a name. Like you wanted to make sure that you didn't miss any God. You know, you were so faithful. And that one God that you've been looking for, just kind of calling the God with no name, you know what? is actually the guy with the has a name, Yahweh, the creator God, the God of Israel, who has is now shown himself in the person and work of Jesus, crucified by Rome, but resurrected, now reigning. He is Lord, Caesar is not. He, he affirms and then makes this, this paradigmatic shift, just like the stage is doing, that brings out how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of what they were looking for. Jesus himself does this in the Sermon on the Mount, man. He is gathered up with his Jewish crowd and he begins to move through the Old Testament saying, you have heard it said, and that's good, but I say to you. Literally what he calls the fulfillment of the law. Now this this dynamic, this fulfillment of all religious and and just truth searching is different than what we find sometimes these kind of left field canned speeches of evangelism. Where we kind of just walk up to people and like, if you were to die tonight, heaven or hell, and are you sure? And it's like, I don't know, dude, I'm, I'm trying to have breakfast with my family, right? Or even like these four spiritual laws. And I know that some, these are different ways that, that, that have precedent. All I'm saying is there seems to be in the midst of those sometimes working, something that the New Testament's inviting us to that maybe we've forgotten. Similarly, We also don't find not just these canned left field speeches, but we also don't find the presentation of the truth through the pulling down of other people's. Hear me here. There is a type of like apologetics that happens within Christians where I have to find someone, Johnny's gonna be my non Christian right now. who I'm like, okay, so I'm gonna figure out all of your pre- presuppositions to your faith system and I'm gonna humiliate you by tearing these down. And even if I don't actually humiliate you, I'm gonna make you feel stupid for the way that you believe. And then I'm gonna show how Jesus loves you and so you should follow him. that You never have any precedent for that in, in the New Testament, in the scriptures. Similarly, and this is one thing that's astounding to me, is every single evangelistic conversation in the New Testament never brings in conversations about judgment. Go find it, go look. Conversations about judgment, wrath of God, all of those big scary things that people use to scare people into Jesus are explicitly and only used for people that are already in the faith. Now that's not to say that there's not judgment, like Paul reflects on that. But when he has conversations with people that are searching for truth, he begins by celebrating the fact that whatever you're looking for, as weird or as much as I may disagree with that, there is something here of the common grace of God that you're searching for something that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of. And so then our task, well, wait, Well, yeah, our task is not left field canned speeches. It's not pulling down. And it's also not never saying anything about Jesus as the fulfillment. Because there's also a way that we're kind of like, oh, you're spiritual, religious. You've got your thing. I've got my thing. Your thing's that. That's cool. We're all, that we still have to identify if we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that what they may have, though something we can celebrate in the common grace of God is, as N.T. Wright calls it, a broken signpost. A signpost pointing to something, yet off kilter and and bent. And based off the historicity, the promise and goodness of the resurrection of Jesus, we repaired that signpost of where it was always meant to lead them in the way of Jesus. So this is why identifying those places of truth that I just talked about and why the skill of shutting up and listening in conversation are essential to evangelism to hear what people are looking for, to see what are the deepest longings of their heart and to ask, how is Jesus the fulfillment of that? How is Jesus the thing that actually they're looking for? But in some unconscious and insidious way, it's been, it's been broken, it's been shaped, it's been shifted. And so you can go through this. I literally just wrote down like, a few of these of like different truth systems. So like uh, somebody who's like super into yoga, and I don't mean just like sp- stretching, but I mean like yoga, yoga, This, like the identify what's being based on that is some, some understanding that the material view that we've been given by the secular culture is not all there is to my body. There is something deeply spiritual about my body in which we can absolutely affirm that we are a created, we have the spirit of God residing within us and that our bodies are to be stewarded. And when we do that, we actually feel a lot better, Right? Those that find the deep truth in the incredible reality of nature, whether that's going up to Malibu or the Topanga Canyons or wherever that might be, and then around this world, we can affirm that this is is captivating because there's a captivator. This is incredible because there's a creator. And the same word that carved the canyons of the Topanga are at work in carving and shaping me, that we can affirm and yet bring it into its greatest depth. Those that find deep truth for their life in music and art and creativity that we can affirm that we are creators and we make beauty because there is a creator who has made us to create more beauty in this world. Even for those that are like enslaved to the cathedral of consumerism, that desire to receive those things, to find those things which make us better. And the good news of the gospel is it does not come through your credit card, but it comes through the cross, sexuality, that desire of that that can go so many ways, but transcendence or pleasure or belonging is like, yes and amen. But what if that signpost is, you're just stuck at the signpost and it's meant to bring you to something far greater and deeper into crystals and horoscopes, man. Like that desire to, to know that I have some guidance and some empowerment at work deeper than just me. Yes and amen. And his name's the Holy Spirit. Mindfulness meditation, like, yeah, dude, like, Christians started that stuff. <laughs> Join the party. Other religions, other, even with mindfulness meditation, and that the gift of, mind, of that meditative work as it's been given to our history is not by looking within, but by captivating ourselves into something so much greater and larger than ourselves. A love that goes deeper than me just trying to become a more kind person. Even other religions of celebrating and identifying the goodness of guiding traditions, of practices, of wisdom. And yet beginning to have conversations about the resurrection of Jesus, the historicity. How it's all built around an empty tomb and no other, I mean come on, where the hope of the religion is predicated on historical events. Even our friends that are atheists, you know, in this vision of the progress, the continued evolution of humanity, to celebrate the progress of humanity and yet go, we're not doing a very good job at it, are we? It seems that there's a glitch in the human system, and what if there's a resurrection of Jesus is exactly the answer to what's been going on? That's just a few. Your task is to look at the places of your neighborhood and the people there and what are they searching for and to ask to meditate, to pray. What is the deep thing that that signpost restored by the resurrection of Jesus actually points them to? I remember uh, our neighbor for a few years, uh, Marla, when we got moved into our, our house, this is... Um, back up in uh, Reno before we moved down. I haven't had a lot of evangelistic events this whole like 18 months of like, you know, my neighbors like waving at the windows, you know, like, hi, I don't know who you are, but now, you know, we're slowly getting to know our neighbors. But our neighbor next door in Reno, uh, Marla, we got to know her. Uh, Older lady, uh, agnostic, like early on into our conversations, I was like, you know, it's easy when you're a pastor (laughs) because it really like sets up like really easy conversations. Like, oh yeah, I'm an agnostic. Oh, cool. But we began to develop this friendship and we would have these late night conversations on her porch, her little front porch. There was one of them that went to like 2.30 in the morning. And like Aaron was like, I'm going to bed. And then like she came to bed. She's like, what time is it? I was like, it was so good. We had these conversations. The whole basis of these conversations with Marla were us just talking through like what's, what's going on in the world. She was so like, had all of these things, not only within her own life, but also in like the 2016, 2017 like years, that there was so much going on that from her perspective, it was like, what in the world is going on in the world? Her own family, her own, and so we would just talk about that. So we'd talk about addiction. We would talk about uh, the Christianity and, and its kind of political idolatry stuff. We would talk, and all of the, and even things that, like, I would, like, disagree with, right? And yet, in all those conversations, my goal was just to go, man, where do I agree with that statement? Where do I agree with that statement? How can I affirm, and yet also, oh, t- yeah, totally. For me, like, as a Christian, like, this is, this is kind of what the shape that brings, and how it actually helps me in the midst of those questions, to shape and move those things, to celebrate where she's at and the questions that she's asking. Man, those are really, like, I know people that just watch Netflix all day. The fact that you're even asking these questions is like, I I love talking to you just because of the fact that it's an engaging conversation. And just begin in the midst of those conversations, celebrating and then pointing to how Jesus and how I understand the historical resurrection is true and what's going on. Using where we agree, what truths we agree on to then move into the deeper conversations. And so that happened and, and went on. But I, even just back to last week, I think I overly talking about the truth stuff, I just want to identify this is connected to what we looked at with Heath last week at Beauty, because I believe that that is where like, the, the, the conversations with her were incredible, And yet it was those moments when like, everything fell apart in her life and that we got to be really, really good neighbors, that like to love our neighbors as ourselves, that really got this rolling that really began to land this with her, not just as, a, as truth, as an intellectual exercise, but as something embodied and lived out. So that was like, I, I will never forget the night where her sister came over and like knocked on the door uh, that her, her dog had just gone outside to go to the restroom, came inside, sat down, and didn't get up. Just like, just died right there. And so they came over and were like, hey, like, you're the pastor, can you pray over our dog? And I was just like, yeah. You're about, you, you guys are all thinking that the dog's going to get back up. There's no resurrection. I'm sorry. I could see faces. And I was like, oh, this is not where I want to go with this. It's like, this, this guy raises dogs. No. Um, <laughs> to kind of pray like this, like sending kind of, you know, just prayer and, and like, you know, just going over and just like thanking God for dogs and uh, for Rufus, like, and, And then helping like load this this dog into the back of the car so they could like take it to the vet and kind of move from there and just praying with her. Or even within her family, just these riddled with addictions and all of the stuff that some of you that have that within families or friends that you just, it it leads to so many problems. With grandson needing uh, care that like would go to uh, CPS without having a child care. And we were able to like pull together our church and finding people to help care for this child. Like this thing, all of those conversations of truth, so important. It was when truth was embodied that it actually connected and started moving something. And I think sometimes we can either do just the embodied thing and never talk about it, or we only talk about Jesus and we never live like him. And the the, the real measure, the really cool space when things begin to really move, when I think the Lord delights to open hearts, is when we find ourselves speaking and doing in the way of the truth of the gospel. Which brings us to... Uh, the final thing where we find that Lydia, just like Marla last year, was baptized. Verse 15. Yeah. Woo. It says, after Lydia was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come stay in my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So I call this the propagation of truth, not only because uh, plants, but um, because what we find happening here is that the multiplication of truth, the, the out of the one, Paul, now they're becoming many, is not merely an intellectual assent where she goes, you know, and it just says, and after she agreed with Paul, she said, have a great day, right? Like, thank you. I'm, I am smarter in the way of Jesus now. But rather, whole embodied lives lived in the truth of the gospel. That truth is something that is meant to have skin on, that it's meant to walk out into our lives. It's discipleship which is what surprisingly we find in what we just read. All four marks of what it means to be a disciple that we just talked about with Lorenzo a moment ago show up right here as a implication of her now receiving the truth of the gospel of Jesus. The four marks of the disciple. If you've been around Collective, you'll recognize these. Through her baptism, you'll see, uh, you can throw those up, yeah. Through her baptism, you'll see, this is her publicly identifying as a follower of Jesus. As Peter Leihart in his new book on baptism says, baptism is the gospel with your name on it. That she writes, her, she puts her name on the gospel in being baptized. She not just receives it intellectually, but embodied, is baptized, identifying herself as a follower of Jesus. Immediately after this, it says, her household was baptized as well. We see that she, Lydia, now participates herself, like Paul, in the work of evangelism. She becomes a disciple maker to her household where she now goes back to to her co the people that work underneath her, whether that's family members, because independent most likely it's servants and slaves within the house. She goes to them and she begins to now do the work of proclaiming and presenting the truth of the gospel to them. So she becomes a disciple maker. In her saying, come to my house and stay, we see her being a steward of all she has for the mission of God. She opens her home for Paul. Hey, you guys need a place to stay. My place is the place where that's gonna happen. Even more than that, as we read more about the church of Philippi, most historians and scholars would, would, would see, based off the letter of the Philippians and how Acts develops, that her house would then go on to become the place where the church met on Sundays. For their Sunday gatherings, hey, you going to Lydia's house? It's not like we're going to Ply Studios. You're going to Lydia's house? She's got this big, swanky, purple house, you know, <laughs> And that's like, that's where everybody goes and that's where we worship Jesus and we, we gather together. You see, we see that the receiving of the truth of the gospel shapes us into people that that truth doesn't just change our minds, it opens our homes, it opens our wallets, it opens our lives and our calendars. If you have if it opened the truth has implications on your entire life. Where the truth of the gospel has not yet made implications, I would say we have not yet fully received the truth as the truth. But then finally, we also see in her saying, come to my house and stay, not just stewardship, but also that that she identifies herself as a family member now. You see, back in this day, Jews and Gentiles, they did not stay with one another. You did not go into a Gentile's home if you were a Jew. And for Greeks, it was a social faux pas to have these kind of weird religious Jewish kind of sect to have some of them come into your house. And yet her inviting them over, they are actively enacting what we saw in Ephesians, that they are a one people, one family now in Christ. And so the truth of the gospel doesn't come to just change your mind about where you think you're going to go when you die. It propagates, it spreads, it changes not just minds, but lives. As Jesus, the truth energizes, motivates, and guides people into becoming responsible followers of him, responsible disciple makers, responsible stewards, and responsible family members. This is it. You guys thought Lo was like being weird when he started talking about all this stuff years ago. He was just doing Acts 16. Did you know you were doing Acts 16? Of course, I did. Of course you did. You're so smart. <laughs> so as we wrap up, what we've just seen is one more facet in this multifaceted, beautiful kaleidoscopic gospel, one that for all of us, we are invited to look through for ourselves, to kind of look up into the sun with an O. There you go. Put that on a shirt. And, uh, and turn the, through the illuminating work of Jesus to turn to see the truth and the beauty. Next week, the, the, the power and then the hope to see that and receive that for ourselves. And yet then to also move out into our lives, showing that, revealing that to others. And so as we seek to bring this truth to those in our city, Acts 16, our story today, invites us to consider how are the places of our city places of truth? What truth is being set forward by this app or this coffee shop, this location, that mall, this place? What truth is being given here? It invites us into a presentation of the truth helping others see Jesus as the fulfillment of which their broken signposts are, are, are moving in the right direction but ultimately miss the mark. And it's the resurrection of Jesus, the truth of that event, that is the basis of which we can definitively say the thing that you're looking for, the thing that you've been searching most for is Jesus himself. And finally, this invites us to ask for ourselves, how are we portraying then, bringing about this propagation of the truth, not just in having changed mind, but changed lives? To ask for ourselves, am I living into this sort of life in the way of the truth? And also, what would it look like for me to help my friends, to help one another, us, walk in this way of being a more faithful follower of Jesus, a family member, a steward, and a disciple maker?